0: Hello and welcome to Roll for Topic, a very special Roll for Topic. Um, I'm Chris Salzman. I'm Andy Rao. And this week we have on Matt Wilson as our guest. Can you say hi, Matt? Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. Um, So, Matt, we we brought you on here because you have just finished up a long-running campaign. And this seems to be like a little bit of a tradition with you. Whenever you do this, we like to bring you on and let you kind of decompress a bit
1: hey, I'm into it,
0: so I like it. So you just finished up a campaign of Eternal Lies that took you about 18 months or so. I'm saying this all is very familiar because I played in it as well. So <laughs> I'll probably have some stuff to say say along with it. But yeah, so before we get too far into this, we just want to let everybody know if you're planning on running Eternal Lies or you're interested in reading it and not having things spoiled for you, this is your opportunity to... Um, hit pause on the podcast, go play an 18 month long campaign and then come back and hit play on the podcast <laughs> before you say something that you don't want to hear. Uh, but... Yeah. <laughs> that and yeah. Um,
1: there's things that we can say about the campaign in general to start with that don't spoil anything about the campaign itself. And yes. uh, I have some things to say that are definitely a little more spoilery that talk about mm-hmm. the ending and all of and some beats along the yeah. way and I'll, I'll try and jump in and, Uh, again say spoiler warning
2: so (laughs) yeah sure but listener, uh, you have been uh, warned so uh the spoilers could come uh, furiously at any moment here so (laughs) yeah
0: yeah it's um let's actually kind of start i think there because it's to me this is a bit of an interesting conundrum like most tabletop games you know you're playing a campaign you're kind of playing a story and sometimes the story can kind of go in different directions with eternal lies right like this is this thing is structured in maybe a different way than other campaigns um that that i'm aware of i guess yeah so why don't you talk a little bit about like yeah like how do you prepare for a game sort of like this that has this story that you're trying to hit all these beats (laughs) beats
2: for. (laughs) for the sake of our listeners can we pause and just do the 30 second description of what eternalize is like so matt maybe give the pitch to us that you gave to your players when you decided that you wanted to run this
1: okay That's an interesting question immediately, um, but here's the capsule pitch for Eternal Lies, or I guess the capsule summary. It was written for the Pelgrine Press Trail of Cthulhu game system, um, and it was sort of explicitly written as an ambitious, globetrotting campaign of mystery and horror against the mythos, sort of deliberately in the same style that the Call of Cthulhu famous Masks of Nyarlathotep. Uh, campaign which i think all gamers should at least know of the existence of uh, or get to experience once because it's a great campaign it was sort of written as a this is a trail of cthulhu version of that experience um that's my understanding it certainly Mm -hmm. reads that way so the pitch is that 10 years ago A brave team of investigators who were poking into a rapidly growing cult across America had a sudden and rather fatal and final encounter with that cult out in uh, California and essentially TPK'd and ended their campaign early. And it's been 10 years since that happened, and now the daughter of one of those investigators has finally gotten up the courage to be curious about what her father was up to, and puts a team together to go figure out what happened in the past, if it's still happening now, and what, oh God, what can be done about it.
0: Yeah. So then the players then play
1: as that, that party, the players then play as the new party investigating, uh, and it's sort of, it's got a very, and Chris alluded to this a little bit. It's got a very distinct structure where act one is the investigators in the current day, figuring out what happened in the past, and answering that first question of what happened and then there's a very interesting juncture that always in every actual play I've read of it and also in our game comes up at the end of act one Which is well, we've done our job. We figured out what happened in the past. Yeah Can, Do we bail? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> um And assuming your group doesn't bail, then Act 2 is a globe-spanning investigation of tracking down and trying to combat this threat from the past while making progress towards a revelation of how they can actually end this, because it rapidly becomes clear that nothing they're capable of doing at the beginning of Act 2 can truly stop the, the events from unfolding. So then that moves into an Act 3 once they've figured out what they need to do and where they need to do it uh, to actually have a shot at saving the planet. Uh, Speaking of spoilers, there is something that happens in Act 3 as well that flips the script a little bit.
2: There's a lot of stuff in what you just said, Matt, that I'd like to stick a pin in. But I am curious if you could tell us a little bit about what drew you to this as a GM. And obviously... did you? I imagine you knew this was going to be an epic undertaking. Did you know it was going to be a year and a half long campaign? And mm-hmm. if so, like, what drew you to it? Yeah.
1: So, one interesting thing about the pitch difference for our game is that we played this as a kind of explicit sequel to Mass of which is an idea. I'm certainly not the only person to have had this idea, but what attracted me to running to run this game was that uh i had so much fun with masks and we we had a great masks campaign that i actually referenced some of these characters during the masks campaign in anticipation oh, of someday writing this or running uh, this as a sequel not with the same characters because obviously you can't plan that far ahead and it's God. it's 10 years later um i guess we should talk a little bit the mass of naralathotep canonically takes place in 1925 and 1926. eternal lies canonically takes place in 1937 but there's a number of reasons and this is a weird little lacuna where it's clear to me and i think other people who have delved into the material like uh aviatrix over at storygames.com and jason alexander i think noticed this as well it's clear that eternal lives was actually written to take place in 1936 Hmm. and i don't know why they changed the dates and there's some historical reasons for that one one is that one of the chapters takes place in ethiopia that's not really a spoiler. You learn that very quickly. One of the chapters takes place in Ethiopia, and their description of Ethiopia is very clearly during the League of Nations crisis in Ethiopia, which is over at the end of 1936, huh. and not a thing in 1937. So it's like somebody knew enough history to put this Ethiopia backstory in there, but it's clearly in 1936. So... The other kind of mind-blowing thing that made me want to run this as a sequel is that 10 years before 1936, i.e. when this other cult group wiped, is the end of Mass of Nyarlathotep, Mm -hmm. which ends during an eclipse, which is obviously a source of magical occult power in the world. So it makes sense to me that the great big cult summoning ritual that the original investigators stumble into in the past is happening in 1926's eclipse so then it's like okay i'll just move the timeline back to 1936 we get our 10-year gap they're connected through this event and that's one thing that if your players have played masks they can wonder about
2: explicit connections
1: around uh the the that date
2: there's something wonderful about that sort of implied sequelness and call of, like sort of the Cthulhu call of Cthulhu trail of Cthulhu just because i mean the way these campaigns are written they don't they are not usually written that a sequel would really even be possible right right, right. i mean usually if the pcs fail like you know the Dwarf world is, is toast or or things <laughs> yeah. are so grim you know masks of narlatep and i suppose we should just throw a spoiler warning for masks as well but i don't think we'll be delving into too deep but I think like, the failure state of that is a little less uh, dramatic than you would think, which plays really well into uh, into being like a prequel to this.
1: Right, yeah. It certainly depends on um, your interpretation of Nyarlathotep's plan. Now, I haven't actually looked at the new ideas in the new edition of Masks that's out there, so I don't know if they've changed it to be more explicitly apocalyptic at the end but Nyarlathotep, in my read on the mythos is not the sort of person who actually wants to usher in the end of the world he's not a great old one that actually wants to do that he's the herald of azathoth the world destroyer and all of that but but it's clear to me that he's developed some sort of almost sympathy for (laughs) earthlings and other lesser beings as it were
2: so yeah so tell us then so you you were intrigued by those elements of uh eternal lies and then uh how did you proceed i was intrigued by that but i i sort of discarded it because on on a first read
1: i didn't care for it as much as i hoped to the text i didn't care for the text as much as i had hoped to it at first and i listened to the Sothoth forums actual play they're a great british group that records and distributes a ton of call of cthulhu run-throughs and they played through this and their experience of the game I mean, it was enjoyable to listen to, but did not sound fun. <laughs> oh. um, I, I don't want to spoil what happened to them, but they they didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I I didn't. That was like, oh man, I could see how this could happen. I, I don't know if I'm into this, <laughs> but it was then years later that I discovered um, that. One of the great inspirations for a bunch of the changes I made to Masks, again, Aviatrix over at the Story Games Forum, had run Eternal Lies as an explicit sequel, even with some of the same characters carrying over from her Masks game. I wasn't prepared to go that far, but I was like, ah, see, I'm not the only one that's had this idea. That's cool. Um, And her game was awesome, as I'm sure they all are. Um, And then Jason Alexander over at the Alexandrian.net had a, had a big series of blog posts about how eternal lives was like secretly the best of the Cthulhu campaigns and hmm. in reading through his opinions on it, I was like, okay, maybe there's something here that I missed. So I looked at what they had, the two of those people had done to run it for their own groups. And I thought, okay, okay. If I focus on, on these bits and not those bits, then okay, there, okay. There is something here. I want to, I want to give this a try.
0: Hmm. I'm interested. What, what were some of those bits? Do you remember any specifics?
1: yes so as i did with masks i changed a lot of the villains i feel like villains often get written very monotone i think aviatrix even and i loved this expression like if it's tuesday it must be omar shakti who's a famous famous villain like <laughs> they can't not everyone can be an immensely powerful eldritch sorcerer of, <laughs> yeah <laughs> of immense scariness and genius So I knew immediately that, of course, I was going to change things around a little bit. And I had a vision for what what would be going on with a lot of these people. And, uh, yeah, so I, I tried to dig in there and change the villains around a bit. And I needed to change the ending. I wanted to keep the twist, but make it a little better, if you will. Okay. And I guess this could be our first real big spoiler warning. Yeah. So there is a twist at the end of Eternal Lies which is that what what the investigative team comes up to do to end the current threat ends up just being a, an inner part of a much bigger plan that was going to end the world. And that's a big rug pull and you have mm-hmm. to set that up and I don't I don't actually think I did a particularly good job with that. I had so many more ideas that I didn't get to use. Uh, for timing reasons there but if you're gonna do that i think you have to give the players some ways out some options about what happens next and the text is written it's very even the process of going to to fight the ancient one in the end in tibet is very linear and then it's a very linear pathway out of there and i feel like for a campaign that's already kind of like got you in this story structure that's very railroady
0: yeah, I'd say as a player, at least when we got towards the the end of it, it was really nice to have sort of a, a series of choices. You know, so at one point, I mean, in the last couple of sessions or so, you just said like, "Here are your possible paths. Like, which one do you want to take?" And that was a, a neat decision point for me as a player, especially because, like, as you mentioned, a lot of the the rest of that campaign sort of felt like. This is going to sound like I'm being negative, but it felt like sort of like stages in video games, almost like you're like, now we're in the Malta chapter and like we're the the Malta stage and we're going to do, do all this stuff and finish this up. And then we're going to go to the next place and do all this stuff and finish that up. You know, we're just sort of like clearing, clearing things out, which was fun and what our group wanted too. but then to have a a big choice at the end of like, okay, Mm -hmm. like, you know, the threat, how are you going to handle it? Um, It was a, a fun, fun moment for all the players to figure out. I'm actually really glad to hear you say that because that's something
1: that Heather said to me at the time as well in between sessions was like, Act 2 here feels very repetitive. Mm -hmm. And that's a criticism that I have as well. Like Even Mm -hmm. with changing all the villains around, what you're doing in each of the sections of Act 2 is a game loop. Like you said, it's like a loop in a video game. The circumstances Mm -hmm. are different. The villains are different. I've tried to you know, provide various levels of, of antagonist reaction on top of that, but there's like a thing you know you need to do in each location and and one person. <laughs> there's like yeah. the cult leader and the thing you need to do in that location. Yeah, yeah. And it's static. That's a static structure. And it's it's very interesting because like superficially, mass of Nyarlathotep and any globe spanning campaign has a similar thing where in act two you're presented with a list of places you can go <laughs> yeah. and you know you're going to find a bad guy at each of those places and you know you're going to do x there but for some reason and i do believe it's the structure of having the two things to do each time that are the same it feels more like like you said clearing a level in a video game
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know it was one of those things that i realized in the middle of play and i was sort of like racking my brains for what i could do
0: to break that loop it's not necessarily like a a a bad thing though right so like i mean to me it felt like a series of of sort of smaller smaller stories like almost like you were running like one shots or like short campaigns for each of the the chapters within act two which is a really like kind of fascinating way of thinking about just putting a campaign together um Mm -hmm. you know in general yeah so like it yeah it wasn't bad i mean like I think, yeah, there's probably some stuff you could do to like subvert that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, it's like when you're, you kind of describing the whole like act one, act two, act three. It's like, well, why was act two as long as it was versus act three? You know, like if you're really kind of telling a story that way. But every session was fun too. So it's like (laughs) this complicated.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's an interesting puzzle because I think it like, it can work. But Mm -hmm. I I found myself increasingly thinking about why I thought Masks of Nyarlathotep, in our run-through of it, worked better. Because I think it did.
0: Mm -hmm. It might have been, and maybe we can just dive into this too, right? So you you started this game before the pandemic. Yes. (laughs) We we had a like couple months of sessions in person, and then the pandemic hit. Right?
1: Yes, like, that is a very big yeah. caveat throughout this. This yeah, so forever... that's, that's a
0: huge caveat as you're listening to this. And you know, in this... 2025, you're like, what was he talking about? Like, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah. Um, it, let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what do you feel like? I think we all sort of know what the challenges of that that are, and you can touch on maybe a few of those. But I'm wondering if you felt like there was anything that actually went better because of the shift to online. Mm-hmm um you know were, were there any things that were easier the one thing that
1: leaps out, out out to me is that we had almost no trouble scheduling yeah we were able <laughs> to keep a like two week cycle pretty strictly whereas like back in the or seven c days some months we'd only play once some months we'd play three times you know sometimes we take a month off or whatever and with this one we were able to like pretty consistently go every two weeks which for me is a perfect cadence um to play at so that that's the one thing that i think worked better it did cause me just not just the pandemic but like everything that was going on last year there were some definite casualties in my prep and ability to run the game mm-hmm. um just at time i didn't feel like i had enough time and and this is something i i touched on in the little conclusion at the last session where like i i had pretty big plans to reincorporate your characters more thoroughly as the game went on and i don't feel like that really landed like there were some really nice moments late in the game don't get me wrong and i think especially in the way i re-envisioned the the Tibet sequence um at the end in in act three which Mm -hmm. is not at all from the book really um and is mostly new but that went pretty well because I wanted to bring you know, like my planning all along was to bring your character moments back in there at every stage yeah, okay. they could. like you know, try and push them towards the lake where it will where they're all where they will all get a customized vision of the future or the past or both, mm-hmm. uh, the labyrinth of lies in the mountain, you know, that's entirely character driven, that sort of thing. But it felt for some of the chapters in particular, Uh, malta and bangkok which we did entirely during the pandemic i really didn't do a great job as a gm of reincorporating (laughs) characters character arcs into the story yeah um the other thing that the pandemic totally scuppered is that i had plans to produce physical puzzles throughout and i delivered on that until we went entirely virtually (laughs) entirely yeah,
0: virtual, and i want to say i think probably one of my gaming gaming highlights forever will be when you pulled out an actual like security box from like like a bank uh-huh. <laughs> bank security box and brought it out to the table and you know like we had to find a key and got to open it and there was a ledger it was it was really fantastic yeah um, so if you read yeah. that
1: in the book it's like you're you are You've been given a key to a safe deposit box, so you know there's yeah. going to be a safe deposit box full of goodies from the past. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's, what's in the box? It's a bunch of pictures that are hard to look at and piece together and in, mm-hmm. encrypted text that contains the notes from the previous party that wiped. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, how can we make decrypting something fun?
2: <laughs> we <Yes>. can make <laughs>
1: it, we can put the, a literal ledger in a box. And if I had all the time in the world, I could have enciphered the ledger. And if you had all the time in the world, you could have decoded it. But instead, I I put a a puzzle where you had to line up letters in a shifting grid and find code words. Um, Mm -hmm. And then each code word, you told me got you a portion of the text. Wow. That's a wonderful way to do it. In the ledger, which that was a lot of fun to put together. It was a lot of fun to find a safe deposit box on eBay. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, yeah, it's a great moment where you can bring that out. And then, then the other p- challenge there is how do you make a, a, you know, manila envelope full of incriminating, horrible photographs? Well,
0: yes, that I, no uh, one actually wants to see. That
1: no one, that they have to take sanity or stability checks just to look at. Like I, I yeah. went with like, uh, just photographs of interior, extremely gaudy interior decoration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> extremely tacky, hyper rich photos yeah. of, <laughs> of people's houses and then just put little like uh character portraits for the npcs that were actually in the photo just photoshopped those yeah. up in the corner so that <laughs> people could find them and ask me questions <laughs> yeah oh, that's an interesting way to yeah think. it was really neat and yeah and, i'm yeah. sad that those plans got scuttled but... <laughs> and then yeah savannah you know i there's a graveyard puzzle where you have to find something in a graveyard and that was fun to produce a physical mm-hmm. version of that that i more or less took directly from jason alexander Hmm, yeah. um so kudos to that him was cool too. i'm given to understand he's he's running the campaign a second time and for mm. the second time he just put up some photos of like he actually built a graveyard out of phone core in his backyard for that <laughs> which is a step beyond what i did oh that's fantastic. i did the first version of that where this tombstones yeah. are all on a cork board and you have a string that you can use to but yeah you know where
2: you know where that leads though it leads with you being featured in like a 1980s focus on the family uh special (laughs) as you break into an actual graveyard at night uh, (laughs) absolutely absolutely
1: (laughs) so yeah i'll just like as a rundown of things that were going to happen there's a puzzle in a pyramid in mexico um, that involves trying to channel uh, blood or blood substitute into a bunch of key points at the same time. That's obviously a pipe dream hmm. scenario that I was going to make out of tile. Um, oh, wow. Things like the Labyrinth of Lies at the very end was literally a board game that I had planned. <laughs> um, oh, that's great. Yeah. But I salvaged some of the cards from that, the card-generated part of that to actually run that. So
0: <laughs> I think fun. I was
1: going to do an electrical panel for yeah. uh, Bangkok. At like the hospital security system mm-hmm. and uh malta is like full of indiana jones stuff i didn't have any firm plans for that but
0: yeah lots of like real life spinning blades throughout your living room I'm sure <laughs> yeah. Would <have> been
1: fun. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't think i would have literally built that in my basement but yeah. there's so many different indiana jones styles puzzles that you yeah. put together that that's where that was gonna go
2: so. so matt one of the biggest questions i have about this as a gm who has at least skimmed through eternal lies and finds it intriguing is uh, I am intimidated by the number of places in the world that you, that the campaign travels to. And so I am curious, was it intimidating to you to know that you are going to have to move the campaign? You are going to have to land the campaign for many sessions at a time in like this wide, like you've mentioned, Malta, Bangkok, Georgia, you know, just a wide variety of places. Is that intimidating? And how did you approach the challenge of evoking a place you've never been to, believably?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, too. Um, I love that stuff, uh, just to start with. So it doesn't intimidate me, but I am always trying to get better at it. Here's one way in which I think uh, Jason Alexander's prep on the Exile alexandrian.net can really help and i did end up borrowing some of this you you have to break it down into chapters right like you know you're not going to be bouncing back and forth between these locales in a session so you really just have to download a place that they're going to be the next session and they're probably going to be there for four or five sessions so you you know you, you load one of these things into your brain at a time uh, at Jason Alexander's site he, he literally just like he's like I'm just gonna rewrite the rule book so you focus on one chapter at a time and he's put together these pdfs that have like everything you need for that one chapter huh. and he also came up with an interesting idea for his home group to help evoke the theme of places that I ended up borrowing as well where he and I did this pre-COVID and sporadically throughout COVID I would remember to email these things out but you you can find photographs of that place in that time that are sort of evocative and I, I personally I feel like that helped so like for the Savannah chapter we've got a map of Savannah in the center of the table and around it I just put postcards of what Savannah looked like in the 1930s, hmm. and uh, you know, you know, one of the things is literally just a Confederate flag, you know, just to remind yourself that this is like a Jim Crow era Savannah, so these things are going on, and you know, in, when you're in uh, Malta, there's lots of Baroque churches, and it's got some prehistoric ruins. So you, you know, like the plan there is to scatter postcards from the place in time around the table. And you don't, you know, there aren't clues in there or anything. Frequently players are going to want to look at everything for clues. But, you know, I tried to make it clear. These are, these are for theme to sort of put mm-hmm. yourselves in that place. And I thought that was a great idea. It's certainly like I always try to begin each session by painting a word picture, picture of, of, of the place and, uh, and what's going on there right now in a couple of sentences as well um yeah, which is nice
0: like i know i found that helpful I'm, I'm not a student of history at all or really of geography at all so i mean like you saying malta to me doesn't really mean much and then you're saying malta in the 30s it's like that means even less so like having having some postcards and stuff is really helpful just to to center yourself I, i'm curious though on this point though like what you know like the tone of a game like this is so important like yeah. you know because you are you know. the stakes are so so high and it like you're playing human characters too so you can't keep things at arm's length like you can with fantasy sometimes like what did you do to set the tone or was there anything that you felt like was successful because I'll tell everybody like you know the group itself was pretty jokey we weren't really jokey in character as much um it was a lot more you know joking about what was happening um, just to sort of ease the tension i think because it was freaky at times but yeah <laughs> yeah so i don't know what, do what do you think that
1: yeah so i i do think it's important just to occasionally paint that word picture and there i you know it's it's important that that's not just like rote description like you know in like an old D and D module where you're like this room is 20 feet square and made out of stone like instead and this is actually something that comes from the eternal Lives book itself which is also good where it provides mood sentences hmm. there's a, they have sidebars about emotional modulation where they provide you with like four or five examples of a of a, of a sinister expression that you can put in your in your You know, Hmm. word picture of the place and time and four or five examples of a more hopeful beat and i I use some of those like you know they're professional writers for a reason you don't have to you know you don't have to create everything yourself um i i created a lot of my own material for this but one of the things that i did keep over was a lot of those emotional modulation moments and i tried to work those into you know like there's a time when players are like over planning and they're Getting bogged down in the details of how they're going to befriend the Nazis and work with them to take on the evil cult, which is a great moment for any GM when your players are like, "Wait, our best plan here is to work with the Nazis."
2: It was a very good plan.
1: (laughs) You double cross them, but then you know, know, sort of like, okay, now it's the next day. Let me tell you about you know that was a pretty dark moment when you had that realization, like, are we the baddies? Look at who Hmm. our friends are. So like maybe the next day dawns in Malta, um, and it's it's a bright day with a crisp sea air, a hint of salt, and there's a sea a seagull, you know, flying around the crystal clear bay, and out there, you know, there's a bunch of sailboats. You just see their little white sails as they dart back and forth on the water. And that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. That provides no play detail i mean it might spark some creativity but it paints a picture of a place and of a thing you're seeing hmm. and i don't know i don't know if it worked yeah. it sounds like maybe it did but that was yeah. my idea there and it's sort of a combination of the book as written in jason alexander's prep
0: yeah i mean it makes me wonder if you if you hadn't done that you know what what it would have felt like in, in various moments um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't think I've ever heard that concept before. Maybe I just haven't run across it. Of just like, you can describe the same thing in a couple of different ways, right? Like you couldn't mm-hmm. describe it in a sinister way or a hopeful way, right? And just setting the, setting that tone is right. up to you. Yeah, yeah. There's
1: a, there's a couple of nice moments. I feel like we established this early in Mexico where you know, I describe what the street kids were doing and it's it's actually kind of neutral like you know this one has dropped a book and is uh now being pursued by a police officer the players themselves provide what that means to Mm. them at that time if books are bad if police officers are bad (laughs) if street urchins (laughs) are bad that's a downbeat you know maybe they step in and they help the street urchin get away whatever valence you want to put on that i feel great because it lets the characters sort of inhabit the world and in a way that isn't always about moving the action forward
2: listening to you talk about this so you did a lot of work to prep this campaign so this is not a campaign that you can pick up and you know give it a once over and then jump right in so my question for you is what do you gain from running a pre-published campaign like this if you are still going to have to do a lot of work if you know you're going to need to change a lot of stuff to to fit your personal interests and the style of your group. So what do you, what did you get from running Eternal Lies, the published campaign? Ah, it's that's, that's a good question. I guess this is
1: this is sort of how I run most things. Is there's an element of like remix culture if you will that I'm perpetually channeling here where I especially with role-playing game stuff i see the skeleton of something that i like and then i want to try and get in there and you know with eternal eyes like i love this emotional emotional modulation bit i love this twist at the end i I, you know i i have some ideas about how to tie in this um you know these npcs and continue on And i think that's an interesting thing but i don't like x y and z so i'm gonna i'm gonna switch those out i will say with this one i didn't actually do as much prep as it might sound with masks, I like changed everything, and I did it all up front because I was like worried about putting a group together, and I wanted everything to be perfect. And so, when I was here, I my players had already told me they wanted to play it. So I, I actually just worked like one or two chapters at a time, and this is where something like the to Jason Alexander's project is amazingly detailed, and he's written so much, but and it, it's great as a starting point. But then you really for later chapters you really want to be building on what's come before so there actually isn't a ton of like pre-prep there other than getting familiar with like How I want to change Montgomery Donovan how I want to change Savitri Siricon like I've thought about those things but I'm I'm not getting into the full-on like Let me understand everything about Bangkok Mm -hmm. so much of it is actually derived from play So I did a lot of prep for the opening act and then each chapter after that was actually less and less.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And there are, I think, in the GMs group about this campaign, which existed briefly on Google, there was a lot of talk about over prepping the third act. Because a lot of GMs had run into a thing where they did so much prep for the end of it that they felt like they actually railroaded their players harder or it didn't land or whatever. I feel I under-prepped it. Having listened to that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I didn't do it as good of a job as I needed to, um, making sure that uh, the revelations would come and be as consistent as I had in my head.
2: There are so many role-playing campaigns out there, uh, not just for the Cthulhu games, but for other things, that you know, the, the sheer size and scale of them you know, almost mandates that it will have to be heavily customized, um, for your group. And I've, I've always just found it interesting. And one of, it feels to me like something that's kind of unique about this hobby. Um, I think yeah. that there's something nice about having, you know, a pre-written, like you, you call it a skeleton, I think like this, this framework mm-hmm. you can kind of riff off of, um, and make it recognizably something that's yours and it belongs to you and your group while also giving you kind of a shared experience that you can have in common with other groups that have you know run through the campaign i think i don't know what other you know hobbies give you quite that kind of experience Um, right
1: like i imagine at some point when we'll be allowed to go back to gaming conventions like you know i i i want to be a fly on the wall for one of my players talking to somebody else who's played masks and in eternal lies and as they like realize how very different their experiences are (laughs) but how recognizable they were at the same time
0: yeah um i'm curious then would you ever run either mask or eternal lies again
1: um yes yes i would there are. It's one of those things where there are so many things to run that, like know. God knows if I'll have that opportunity. Yeah. I don't. I love masks to death, and I would absolutely run that again. Um, I'd have to find something new to do while keeping some of the changes that I made to this to the structure to that just make it more modern and mm-hmm. less. 1980s um, but <laughs> okay. Eternal Lies I want another crack at because of the COVID year thing hmm. like okay. I felt like there was so much that I didn't get to do and that I learned about the campaign during play and here's just one trivial example big parts of the story involve a substance called nectar that behaves differently in Los Angeles and Bangkok and the rules as written It 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 causes similar like psychotic episodes but the symptoms of that are different in los angeles the nectar that is produced there makes you very horny and do all that sort of thing in bangkok it makes you want to fight that's great but there's a third location here in this chapter malta what is maltese nectar like the book doesn't tell you oh nope jason alexander didn't notice this aviatrix didn't have it do anything different but while we were playing malta and while uh it was very early like the first malta session when liza who was very religious started going like went on a pilgrimage tour of all the religious sites in malta and just knowing that there's so much prehistoric religious sites on malta i was like of course maltese nectar promotes religious ecstasy that's the old Mm. that's the thing that's on par with sex and violence how did i miss that how did i miss that the the, the Maltese (laughs) nectar should be like this that's just one of those like tiny things and then the realization that man each of these chapters is very similar like how do i break this up to make the core game loop in each chapter like build on itself rather than just like okay now show me again okay now show me Mm -hmm. again
0: (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: and I have ideas for that so maybe someday I'll run eternalize again and and we'll we'll get all those physical puzzles we'll know why multis nectar is different and <laughs> yeah the core game loop in each
2: of the chapters in act two will be different yeah so I think we should I was just gonna say we should probably look towards wrapping up but I want I do want to give Matt a few minutes uh, to bring up anything. He wants to say that we haven't you know, asked him. But before we do that, so Matt, you can think about that for a sec, because I want to turn uh, my eye of Sauron gaze over on Chris <laughs> here. Chris, one of the joys of being a GM and getting to play in other GM's games is you get to see what they do that's cool that you can steal for your own use. So what is uh, something you are stealing and putting into your bag of GMing tricks uh, that you got from this Eternal Lies game?
0: It's <laughs> a really good question. I mean, like I think everything, but the the one thing that really sticks out to me is uh, so Matt chose a theme song that he plays at the beginning of every oh. every session, which sets the mood wonderfully. And like I think I even mentioned this when we were talking about the seventh sea because there was also a theme song for that. But it's like it's like lodged in my brain, right? It's like the you know the, the intro song to any of your favorite sitcoms or you know favorite TV shows like that. That sort of thing, where you're just like, yeah, like you know what's about to come, yeah. So as far as the pacing is concerned, it was it's it's great. Like you know, like so we do a quick recap, and then the music would hit, and then we knew that we were we're, we're going into the session from there. Um, so that's something that I would encourage every GM to think about, somewhat, you know, having some sort of musical cue or other cue that like really sets the like now we are playing. Um, what an
2: interesting idea, Matt. Tell can is that a, is that something you do at all the campaigns you run or is that something mm-hmm. you decided to do for Eternal Lies?
1: No, that's that's something that I decided to do ever since like I went on a long hiatus from role playing games and when I came back the first campaign back was Masks. And I had such a clear picture of what I wanted to accomplish there. It it had theme music as part of it, huh. so yeah, I started doing that. And then with Seventh C, I knew I wanted like an episodic structure. And you know, I I wasn't I I still love the BBC remake of the Musketeers TV show, which has a really swashbuckly theme song that's like thirty seconds long, and that's just like okay, now the episode has started. I was like, okay, we're doing that again. And now it's just yeah, I I noticed that my players respond to it. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like it is a good signal for like, okay, now like
2: pre, pre-show pre banter is, is over. I'm up, I'm picturing, by the way, like a video, I'm picturing like a 30-second video intro, you know, like you get when you're sure, watching yep. your a very show and it's, yeah. you know, starring, you know. So yeah, my, my,
1: my players actually like storyboarded one for the Seven Sea game. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like if we were animators, we'd absolutely ha- have had one of those. And then, yeah, yeah the other thing I... I pick a, a piece of art to an evocative piece of art <clears throat> to play or to yeah. display while the theme music's playing.
0: Yeah. I was going to say bringing in some other media like that was something. Yeah. Matt has done particularly well. Like he was talking about like having all the pictures and stuff like that on the table. I tend to run my games very like theater of the mind and that's, you know, Matt does that as well, but I think setting the kind of the setting the stage a little bit with some of those pictures, some of those descriptions, some of the music, and things like that, which really helps you get in get into the right mood. Um, I'm curious. We're gonna, I think. Unless you had more questions for me, Andy. I had a question for Matt.
2: Nope. Uh, no, I'm fine mm-hmm. with turning it back to Matt and, uh, you know, letting him uh, get out anything that we haven't yet uh, pried yes, out yeah. of his mind. So.
1: <laughs> Let me get yeah. things off my chest. <laughs> yes. go, ahead and, go ahead and ask Don't your work. question first.
0: Though. Yeah. Okay. So my question is, without getting into too much detail about, like, you know, who the characters are and, like, you know, all, all that that sort of stuff, are there any moments that you're just like, yes, this was great. This is why I play games like these. Oh. Anything that really sticks out to you?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think one nice thing is that everyone had at least one of those moments. I really liked, say, Mark French's handling of, of Jimmy and his on-again, off-again relationship with his secretary uh, throughout the the Mexico chapter. I, I, I thought he did a great job with that. Uh, that was great. And then, just to brown nose a bit, I thought I thought you did a really good job okay. with your character at the beginning and at the end of like bringing it back full circle for uh your movie actor it's hard to pick just one so like i'd, I'd have to start yeah. listing out a bunch of stuff but like the moment where the the table decided that maya's daughter had snuck onto an airplane and it, so she would turn up in bangkok and that's how you okay. get her solace there because we were we were yeah. playing a system that in order to refresh their pools and be able to like function as, as high level investigators again they had to spend time with their solaces every chapter so like the ways in which you guys managed to make that work narratively, I, I thought was good and
0: like I only wish I could have done more of
1: it. <laughs> yeah. That's on my regrets yeah. pile for
0: sure. <laughs> yeah. So Okay. All right. Well we will cede the floor to you then. Is there do you have any kind of you have a closing argument, Mr. <laughs> I have a
1: closing <laughs> argument. Yeah, so I guess the one one big change that I made is that I didn't actually run this with Call of Cthulhu rules. I didn't even run it with Trail of Cthulhu rules. I ran it with Quickshock Gumshoe rules from the Yellow King role-playing game. Mm. And I think that mostly worked. I don't think I'd do it again, though. That rule system, I think, is great for shorter stories. It does a lot of very interesting things. But, um, yeah, I think I'd stick with a, a slightly altered Trail of Cthulhu rules if I were to do it again. One of the things I was trying to avoid is, like, the flat integer-based description of injury and mental trauma in these systems and the quickshock system gives you literal cards as consequences rather than like decrementing a number somewhere there are numbers but but the consequences are, are are cards with narrative descriptions of effects and that's that's great for a short thing where the range of possibilities is relatively limited but
2: for a big epic thing <laughs> a lot of cards you gotta make right it's too many cards yeah i've seen that card system in the um in their one-on-one rpgs and that would be tough to like scale out to a big campaign like this with lots of characters
1: in my infinite hobris i thought i could do it um, <laughs> i didn't do it particularly well but also the campaign moving entirely virtual yeah (laughs) then makes the thing where i'm like handing my wife cards and saying can you text this to roger can you text (laughs) a picture of this card to so and so (sighs) that was a mistake but yeah there's some things i want to change from the trail of cthulhu rules like i i don't like all the all the stability tests i I think i would probably try and do something like just flat flat stability losses for for different scenarios and, and all of that so that's one thing i was trying to avoid um that i don't think worked out particularly well but yeah i I mean i think on the broader theme of like big book campaigns they're they're a great way to like find an arc and then you can just replace the pieces like on a like you don't need to prep the entire thing even for an involved mystery story like this you can actually like as long as you know the destination upfront you can go like one step at a time and have things work out just fine and just be a little ahead of your players so that's that's one bit of advice and encouragement that i'd like to say there and then the other thing is like like get in there and rearrange the characters and especially look at your villains and make sure that they're Like, in some ideal world, like, they're memorable for your players. They'll remember them years later. And not just because they were, like, mechanically superior. It's often, like, Mm -hmm. the least mechanically interesting or or good characters that are most memorable, I, I think, like... Hopefully, you know, five years from now, everyone remembers Jonathan Brooks in Mexico City, even though he's not a challenging
0: ca- villain to overcome once you get to know him. Yeah, he he's the sort of guy that you know, though. Like, yeah, <laughs> like you, I, you know, we will this meet guy. a Jonathan Brooks at some point in my life and be like, oh, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> yeah. And, uh,
2: yeah. All right. Well, guys, shall we, uh, we wrap it up? We're coming up on uh, about an hour here. Sure. So, You've
0: yeah i think we shouldn't yeah. let me talk um yeah phone thanks phone. matt for coming on this is really great um sure. yeah, we'll, we'll have you on again after you finish another one <laughs> 18 months from now we'll put it on the calendar
1: that's the price of me being being here yeah
0: you like... could come on some other time and just you know roll yeah. on the, the table like a okay. like a normal person <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs>
2: all right uh, so uh yeah, i guess okay. part a quick parting shot matt what what are you going to run next like please tell me you're going to run like a robotech campaign <laughs> or something like that to as a palate cleanser uh So (laughs) Chris uh, I actually sent
1: my my group a list of four options for short uh, like four to six session things Um, and they are all there's one more traditional fantasy element or idea there's a cyberpunk idea. There's Blades in the Dark, Idea. Um, and, well, that's my choice, I guess. And then there's... Uh, it's actually... I realized this afterwards. It's like the John Harper special. I have Lady Blackbird on there as well. <laughs> okay. It's like three John Harper games. And, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and Planescape. So. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so it's a decent list, and I'm looking forward to it. All right, well, hey, uh, thanks a ton, Matt, for sharing... You know, for giving us sort of the uh, this postmortem of your Eternal Lives campaign. And, um, sure yeah shout out to anyone who's uh, thinking about running this beast and good luck to you and uh, hopefully you found this conversation uh somewhat helpful so yeah
1: yeah set it in 1936 just do it yeah <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah and email matt with questions
0: i'm sure you'd love to... <laughs> yeah yeah love to provide some hand-holding advice but yep. all right yeah well thank you um i've been chris Salzman. i've been andy Rao, and uh i've been matt wilson thanks for having me guys remember if your players are having fun you're a great gm